Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. On March 1st, a man named Ahmed Al-Faki Al-Mahdi made an appearance at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and in so doing, earned the dubious distinction of being the first person to ever appear at the ICC for the crime of destroying cultural heritage. He's accused of ordering and participating in the destruction of centuries-old mausoleums in Timbuktu, Mali. Timbuktu is taken over by Islamist extremists in the midst of the civil war in Mali, and their puritanical vision of Islam clashed with local customs, which imbued these mausoleums with religious significance. And there are also, of course, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. This is not only the first time that an individual is being charged with a crime against humanity of destroying cultural heritage, but it is also the first time that a jihadist is facing ICC prosecution. On the line with me to discuss the facts of this case and its broader significance to the International Criminal Court and global human rights more generally is Mark Kirsten. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and I'd count him as a regular guest. This is probably his third time on the show. He's also the proprietor of the excellent Justice in Conflict blog. And just a quick note, huge thank you to everyone who is sending me suggestions of interviews, and a huge, huge thank you to all those who have left reviews on iTunes. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And now here is Mark Kirsten. We know both really important things. And then there's a lot of things that we don't really know. So we know that this individual was a teacher, an Islamic teacher. We know that he was affiliated with Ansar al-Din, which is a group that is affiliated with al-Qaeda in the region. We know that he was involved directly in the destruction of mausoleums and shrines in Timbuktu, shrines and mausoleums, which are UNESCO protected and which is regarded as a some kind of a war crime or crime against humanity. Uh, we can call them cultural cli- crimes, if you wish, the, the same types of things that we've seen in Syria, for example, in Palmyra or previously by, by groups in, um, in, in Afghanistan, the Taliban in particular. So we know that. Uh, we know that he is f- from Mali. However, we also know that he wasn't surrendered or arrested in Mali at some point, and this is where it kind of gets a little bit more mysterious, at some point, probably on the border of Niger and Mali, this individual, Al-Mahdi, was, was arrested or detained and brought to the capital of Niger, where for a significant period of time, perhaps upwards of a year, he was held in detention. Then uh, last last year, I believe it was in September, 
investigators or at least staff within the International Criminal Court who had been considering issuing or requesting the issuance of an arrest warrant for Almadi were somehow told or somehow informed or somehow found out that he was either going to be released or somehow freed from his detention in Niger. They very quickly and without any public knowledge uh, requested an arrest warrant, likely, uh, clearly actually under seal. Mm-hmm. So, Which is um, normal. It's not like abnormal to have a sealed arrest warrant. Um, well, it's, it's not abnormal. It's not, it's not particularly controversial, but it's a strategic decision. So it's a decision not to uh, allow, you, you only issue sealed arrest warrants if you think that issuing it publicly would de- somehow decrease your chances of the arrest warrant being enforced. So it's a strategic option that the prosecutor has. In most instances, uh, warrants of arrest are not issued under seal. That being said, of course, if there were a bunch of uh, arrest warrants under seal in different situations, which there might be, we simply wouldn't know because no one's allowed to know until they become public. But so, for example, Omar al-Bashir, despite the fact that you would imagine that it would be difficult to issue an arrest warrant for the sitting head of state of Sudan over allegations of genocide or war crimes or crimes against humanity in, in, in Darfur, he, the Office of the Prosecutor, chose strategically not to issue a sealed warrant against him, despite the fact that maybe some people would think that strategically that would be more useful because he hops over to a, a different country that might be an ICC member state or might have some types of actors that might be willing to arrest him, and then he would be arrested and you would release the, the warrant to create this pressure. So that didn't happen. It, so- it, so how then did, did Al-Faki uh, end up in The Hague? What happened? He was like let out of prison and immediately arrested? Well, he wasn't let out of prison. What we understand, or certainly what I understand, is that, um, that prosecutors, after basically getting some kind of signal that he could be released or he could be freed, traveled immediately, got this sealed arrest warrant, um, and traveled immediately to get the approval of the various actors in Niger that they needed to, got that approval from authorities in Niger, and then in the very, very early hours, boarded him onto a plane which arrived uh, in The Hague on a very, again, very early on a Saturday morning, issued a press release that this individual, who had really not been on anybody's radar, um, had been arrested uh, and was in the detention um, um, in Scheveningen, in The Hague, and would face consequent charges uh, regarding his role in the destruction of these shrines and, maus- uh, and mausoleums in Timbuktu. Uh, okay, and, and that brings us to what I think there are really kind of two things that make this particular case uh, very unique, both for the International Criminal Court and I think for the cause of international justice more broadly. The first is what he's actually being charged with. As far as I know, the the kind of rap sheet that that um, that it has been compiled against him essentially it's it's not they're not inventing anything. They're just doing something that's unprecedented for the court, which is to consider the act of destroying a cultural site as a war crime. This isn't, in fact, really the first time that this has been considered. If you remember, for example, uh, during the Balkan Wars, the bridge in Mostar between the two communities um, that was destroyed was also considered, uh, I believe, by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia as 
a special act of war, a special crime of war, so a war crime in and of itself, because it destroyed a, an important cultural artifact. So in a sense, this isn't anything new in terms of thinking about what constitutes a war crime or can constitute a war crime. It's simply unprecedented for the International Criminal Court to have done it. But it's widely recognized that in the context of ongoing and active conflicts, that the destruction of cultural properties that are intended to be protected can, can constitute legally, um, legally a war crime. And so that's essentially what he's been charged with. And you wonder if this is like a signal to um, other groups that are currently destroying cultural heritages uh, in Iraq and Syria in particular. I mean, just uh, last year we had the destruction of Palmyra in, in Iraq by ISIS. Um, you know, there are part, ancient parts of Aleppo uh, that have been destroyed in this fighting. Um, and I suppose you wonder, you know, if the court is eyeing any sort of deterrent uh, effect. Not that I think ISIS can really be deterred in any way, but you do wonder if, if there's a signaling going on. Absolutely. So I think there is. And I think the prosecutor today in Al-Faqi's um, confirmations of charges hearing made that clear. Uh, that this was, that there was some kind of, and, and, and I think the Office of the Prosecutor and the, the Chief Prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, has always made this clear from the get-go um, that this really wasn't just about his, uh, his acts in Timbuktu, but also about this wider issue, as you've just mentioned, that it seems increasingly we see cultural sites being the victim of aggressive warfare and of individuals deciding that as part of their aims, they're not only going to attempt to engage in violent acts against other populations, they're also going to attempt to destroy the cultural artifacts that really define, in the words of Ben Suda today, uh, the, the, the soul and spirit of these, of these people. At the same time, I think not only is she trying to signal and perhaps, as you suggest, create a deterrent effect, and I, and I, I agree with your and I share your, um, uh, your cynicism in terms of whether a group like ISIS could ever be deterred, but I think she's also relying on that narrative. So in the sense that uh, I think the ICC, like any international organization, wants to appear relevant and useful to the international community and to uh, on the international more uh, on the international stage more broadly and what they're doing here is saying that you know there is this attention around cultural crimes and the destruction of cultural sites well we're going to do something about that in one situation where we actually have jurisdiction they can't really do it in Iraq they certainly can't do it in in Syria they'd have trouble doing it uh, in Afghanistan, but they certainly can in this instance in um, in Timbuktu. So I think that's what they're trying to. I think they're in a sense trying to rely on that narrative. And, and, and I should say, uh, just for clarification, that's because the ICC does have jurisdiction in Mali. It does not have jurisdiction in Syria or uh, Iraq. But I would argue that another uh, way that the ICC is signaling that it will be, it is useful and it is relevant, is the fact that. This uh, accused is the the first real, you know, true blue jihadi that the ICC has ever prosecuted. Um, he is the first Islamist extremist that has 
uh, sat before the ICC and facing trial, which is, I think, a significant um, step for the the court in its own right. Absolutely. Yeah, of course it is. It absolutely is. And that also creates different kinds of issues that we might see regarding uh, his defense. So I don't know, and I would doubt very much if the defense would suggest that Al-Faqi didn't destroy these cultural sites or wasn't willing or interested in destroying these cultural sites, because of course he was. And that, you know, I don't think they would run away from 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 that kind of claim, which then brings different kinds of elements into the case uh, for the prosecution in terms and, and the defense for how they're how this is going to really shake out. Because in most cases, what you have is a defendant who will simply deny uh, either uh, the fact that these crimes happened at all or that they individually were responsible or involved in the perpetration of the specific crimes that they were charged under. I don't think Al-Faqi has... Uh, has an interest uh, in all um, meanings of that term in in denying that he was involved in the destruction of of shrines in Timbuktu. Because presumably he would be ideologically committed to um, having destructed to destroyed the those those religious sites in Timbuktu as like a a a fulfill fulfillment of his religious convictions, right? Exactly, and what he would espouse as a Islamic as a particular type of Islamic scholar and perhaps as a member of Ansar al-Din and you would you know this this really brings to the fore and we haven't really seen it yet but I I wouldn't I simply wouldn't be surprised if someone in this position wouldn't wear these types of charges as a kind of badge of honor yes I was involved in the destruction of these shrines because yes this is what we preach and this is what we do um and he, therefore, that trans, that is not to say that he won't have a rigorous defense, but his defense won't rely, I don't think, on claims that he wasn't uh, involved in the destruction of these shrines at all, because he has really no interest in denying his involvement. Um, so how valuable is it for the court to um, go after a, a member of a, an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group like Ansar uh, Dean? So, I mean... What what kind of precedent might this trial set for other potential future prosecutions of other Al-Qaeda or perhaps even ISIS affiliates? It's a good question. I don't necessarily think this case will set actually any precedence for the court going after other similar type figures or going after individuals from Al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS. I think they do want to demonstrate to the world that they are able to, at least in certain instances, you know, investigate and potentially prosecute these types of individuals. And so they're, they're portraying themselves as an actor in the fight against extreme Islamism and radical Islamism. Uh, however, the fact that this would set any precedence for them in terms of future cases I don't think that the ICC necessarily would, and the prosecutors at the ICC would necessarily link uh, additional types of investigations to this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, if you think about it again, you have to remember that, you know, this individual, Alvaki, was in detention already. So they, they kind of had their prize. They had, they had the potential to get this individual and only really did so when they thought he would be released. 
So it's not like they really worked hard to go after somebody, didn't know whether they could, and then finally got it, and then they had this great prize. So a lot of times um, what you'll find, and I think the case, this is the case, at least in in the Alfaki situation, is that the court will act opportunistically to get people that it thinks it can finally get into the dock. In this instance, it worked. In others, it won't. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure this will set that great of a precedent. Well, I wonder um, along those lines, if he's almost too small of a fish uh, to, to, to appear before the ICC as opposed to any other kind of jurisdiction. I mean, you know, like you said, he, he wasn't someone that anyone had really heard of before. I mean, the, the ICC is alleging that he led this group that was responsible for the destruction of mausoleums in Timbuktu, a horrible crime though it is. Uh, you wonder um, if the ICC is really a place for someone that relatively low level. I mean, you know, presumably as his trial is going on, so is the trial of like the former uh, head of state of, of uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Laurent Bagbo, where you have, you know, it seems that like the ICC is kind of reserved for the the biggest names, and he doesn't seem to be one. Well, I think there's a so that claim has been made quite a few times now that the ICC has the wrong person in Mali, right? That this person is too small of a fry to uh, to prosecute, and therefore, you know, that there's some something's amiss here, and they shouldn't really be focusing on him. I think there's a couple of responses to this. The first is that. Today, what we saw was the confirmation of charges. And if this individual isn't, you know, kind of a senior level perpetrator, judges don't have to confirm the charges. This, this doesn't have to go to, to trial if it's a misplaced um, case. And we should um, say the confirmation of charges is sort of like a, a grand jury, right, where they um, just sort of assess the evidence and see whether or not there's enough evidence to actually go to trial. Exactly. Exactly. So... Uh, and that's up to judges. They have to confirm the charges and say, you know, this case makes sense within the system of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and therefore it can proceed to trial. So it's not like he's already on trial. And I think I would assume if the issue that he was simply, you know, an accessory to a crime when he was just a minor perpetrator in a crime, if that's a if that's a significant issue for judges, I, I would imagine uh, that they'll raise it. Um do you want to wait for a second while the phone stops ringing? Sorry, Mark. Sure, sure. That's fine. I can edit this stuff out. That's fine. It's no problem. Um, yeah. Just, I don't know what's going mm-hmm. on there. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I have uh, any more questions. Are there any other points that you'd want yeah, to? Yeah, on this, actually, I think, I think, I think just, just quickly um, on this, which is that I, my second point really is that I'm not sure where the criticism that the ICC is going after small fry, even if he is small fry, um, where that really stems from. If he has committed these crimes and they are considered war crimes and he was heavily involved in them, then starting lower on the rungs of perpetrators doesn't strike me as a bad strategic decision on the part of the prosecutor. If you look, for example, at what the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia did, is they focused on lower level perpetrators and then slowly built up uh, confidence and built up momentum to to the point where they pursued uh, justice for those people who were most responsible for war crimes, crimes against humanity and acts of genocide uh, in the region. And I, I, I think the ICC could certainly do that with regards to the situation 
in Mali. So as a, and, and I think the prosecutor has been quite clear that this was only the first step that the court would take in Mali in terms of bringing Al-Faki and prosecuting him. So, so I actually think, you know, if this, if Al-Faki ends up being the only person ever surrendered and investigated and prosecuted by the International Criminal Court in Mali, that isn't justifiable. However, if this is just the first of a number of individuals, and he happens to be perhaps a slightly lower on the rung of seniority, um, but the court gets momentum and confidence and builds better cases of, for more senior individuals, then I think this is a very smart and good strategy for the court for the prosecutor to take. And I guess finally, assuming he this goes to trial and he's convicted, like I wonder what a sentencing protocol is for destruction of cultural property as opposed to like murder or genocide like are they are, are they obliged to treat that as a uh, a crime worthy of a lesser sentence you know whenever the icc does something whether it's prosecutors or judges they're almost always because of the youth of the court they're almost always doing it for the first time ever and so one of the things that we don't have and I think what you're alluding to is kind of a sliding scale of, of, of sentencing, let's say, and where certain crimes should fall in terms of how many years of a sentence individuals should receive. We only really have a couple of sentences. And so, for example, you can think of Thomas Lubanga, who was found guilty of, of uh, using child soldiers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He received 14 years for that. So if he receives 14 years for conscripting and using child soldiers, how many years does Al-Faki get for, for attempting and actually destroying certain cultural shrines? I don't think anybody knows. Uh, judges would have to grapple with that. How grave, how serious is the destruction of cultural um, artifacts versus, for example, um, attempting to murder a group of people or sexual violence in a certain case. We really don't know. The interesting thing here, though, is, and it's something that I haven't brought up, but I think is really important, is that prosecutors at the ICC are under quite a bit of pressure from human rights groups to add charges to al-Faki. So, and this goes again to the issue of whether he's a small fry. So there are groups which actually think that he's also responsible for uh, sexual abuse and sex-based sex um, and gender-based violence in Mali. And if they successfully add those charges um, to the charges that Al-Faki already faces, then it would become an increasingly complicated uh, trial. And of course, the possibility um, of him getting a graver and harsher and longer sentence obviously increases. All right, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much. That was topical and timely and interesting. Hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Bye.